Amen. Amen. What a joy it is to be with you all today. I think um, for me, uh, one, I was I was saying how much I enjoyed this neighborhood. I think it's beautiful. I went for a jog today. I was like, man, they got trails over here. Got a little park over here. Little little river coming through there. Got this nice little building thing going on. Schools. I mean, it was beautiful, man. Um, so I was just like, wow, this is this is it's dope. And I appreciate y'all having us. Uh, where I come from. A lot of our houses have like big walls in front of them, and then they have like barbed wire and electric fences on top of that. So you can't really see somebody else's house. It's like, oh, they have grass right there. Okay, that's nice, you know. You can't really see your neighbors. It's really hard to get to know your neighbors where, where I come from. And so just I walked out the other day, and I was like, I'm just sitting on my porch, and anybody can come to me right now. It's like, it's like this is weird. And kind of cool at the same time. I guess I forget because I've lived for so long on that side of the world that I forget that. Um, but it's beautiful. My wife, Naya, and our children send their greetings um, from Lusaka, Zambia. Um, our church, Kabwata Baptist Church, sends our greetings. Um, it is a joy to serve you all this morning, to be with you all in worship. Um, I also wanted to thank the elders and just for inviting me. Uh, allowing me to share on prayer. This topic has been um, life-giving for me, for my, my walk with the Lord as we talk about prayer, as we talk about laboring in the harvest field. It has been life-giving, um, and I thank the Lord for it. This morning, we're going to look at just a few verses in Matthew chapter 9, 30, 35 through 38. We're going to look at Three verses to kind of give us context. We're going to walk through those verses. And then the last verse, I have four points I want us to look at, focusing on prayer. We want to focus on prayer. So if you have your Bibles, open up to uh, Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. Most of us have it on the phone these days, so scroll to it. And um, let me read. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the corrals, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest field. Let's pray. Lord, again, I want to thank you. And just as was prayed before, thank you for this time, for your word. Pray that I would decrease and that you would increase and that your word would come forth to your people as an encouragement or a challenge, but ultimately a desire to know you and to experience you. We pray this morning for a deeper intimacy with you or a knowledge of you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So looking at verse 35, it says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. So if you look at all of chapter 9, Jesus is actually ministering to several different towns and several different people. He's sharing, he's ministering, he's traveling, he's proclaiming the gospel. Even in chapter 8, that is what he's doing. He's carrying this message of light and hope to the world. He's carrying himself. And he's bringing this to people no matter where they are. So he's proclaiming the gospel and he's healing every sickness and disease of the people. In short, Jesus is sharing the gospel message and meeting physical needs. Both seem to be clearly important here, right? Because Jesus went through so many towns and villages and cities doing just that one thing, meeting physical needs of people and preaching the kingdom of God. As a church, I think we need to be engaged in both the physical and spiritual needs of those around us. Does that make sense? I think it's important for us to recognize that there are two things that we have to, to look at, the physical and the spiritual needs of those around us. Where else do we see this in Scripture? We see this in, in Mark chapter 1, verse 29, when Jesus goes back to Peter's house and his mother-in-law is sick and he, he heals her. She jumps up, she begins serving, and immediately, it's on the Sabbath, so as the sun goes down, everyone rushes over to Peter's, Peter's mother-in-law's house. They're standing outside the door, and Jesus is healing everyone. He's taking his time, and he's healing all of these people of sicknesses and diseases. And then in verse 35, this is what it says. And, I, and rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go to the next towns. Not next town, next towns, right? That I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. So he's healing all of these people. But he said, after a much prayer, he says, yo, let's go to the next towns because I came out to preach the gospel. I came to let them know about their spiritual need as much as their physical. Where else do we see this distinction between the value of this, the world and spiritual, worldly, spiritual needs and worldly needs? We also see in Paul's relationship to Timothy, yes, in 1 Timothy 4, verse 8, or verse 6 through 8, Paul is talking to Timothy. And he's telling them, listen, your doctrine is good. Make sure you continue to be a faithful servant. But I want to charge you in this. He says, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be good. You will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith and of good doctrine that you that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily, bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. As Christians, we should not, we should not ignore the worldly needs around us. That wouldn't make sense. You see someone hungry, you're going to walk past them? That doesn't make sense. But at the same time, we cannot lose sight of the spiritual needs that are before us. 
Because the spiritual needs stretch out into eternity, don't they? I love what you all do here. I was looking on the website. You know, this is, this is making me very, very curious, just being here. I'm like, what, what do they do? Like, how do they do this? So uh, PSA, who knows what the, the PSA, who's PSA? Yes? Okay. I know not everyone, some people are visiting. So um, is it prayer, prayer, study, and act? Is that what it is? Yes. So I was reading, go to the website and check out what they're doing. It's amazing. All the opportunities you have to serve. Um, this is a great expression of the Christian faith. Seeing a need, meeting a need. I also heard about the, the coffee and the convos. That's amazing. You just, you just, I mean, first of all, I'm a big coffee guy. But you, I get to have coffee and tell people about Jesus at least once a week. I'm in. I get to sit down and discuss the God who created heaven and earth over a cup of coffee. And people come. They just show up. That's amazing. But what if, what if we only fed people? What if we only helped them find homes? What if we only helped them learn how to read and write and we never told them about the gospel? Yeah, you're like, mm, I don't know about that. There's NGA, NGOs that do that already, right? Nonprofits already do that. What we do makes us distinct, makes us different, makes us salt, makes us light, is we bring the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're seeing the physical needs, and we're meeting that. But there's an eternal need that they have. They need to know Christ. The suffering in this world will end one day when Christ comes back. But eternal suffering lasts always. In short, one need is greater than the other. They both are important. Jesus did both of them. But one need will last always, and we can meet that need by proclaiming Christ. I think that it's, 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 a great, it's a great opportunity and a great privilege to love people where they are, to meet them in the spaces where they are. When I first moved to South Africa, um, it, was, it was a different experience for me altogether um, because... Like I said, there was walls everywhere. There's fences everywhere. Um, crime was crazy. You know, I mean, just, you can ask me later the things that I've seen and experienced firsthand. Um, but one thing for sure is I learned how to love people over there. And we'll talk about that. But you have to learn to understand there are different types of needs that people have. Let me give you an example. I was wondering, is it Oxen Park right here? I saw, yeah, I was running through the, well, so I'll give you an example. Say I was, I was running through the park there, right? And I, I fell. Say I was running through the park and I fell on a branch. I'm clumsy. Uh, you know, I fall. I hit a branch and I hit a tree and I skid my hand and there's splinters all in my hand. It, it can be really nasty if you get splinters stuck all in your hand. And I say, I can't get all of these out. I probably need to go to urgent care. So I go to urgent care and this did not happen, by the way. I'm just, okay. So I go to urgent care, and I say, look, ma'am, I, I need this taken care of. Can you help me out? She says, sure, Mr. Bird. Let me see what's going on. Let me see your hand. I said, wait a minute. Why are you bleeding? Oh, I, I got stabbed the other day. It's all good. Don't worry about that. 
Mr. Bird, you, you're, you're bleeding on the side. You want me to look at your hand and you're bleeding. Yeah, I don't believe in knives. It's cool. It's fine. But I do have these splinters in my hand, so I need you to, I need you to help me out with this. Sometimes the nurse is, gonna, the nurse is gonna be like, this guy's crazy. His greater need is his, the stab wound. But he's only concerned about the splinters in his hand because that's what he sees as important. Does that make sense? For us, we know the greater need. Sometimes the only thing we can do is like, look, let me address your hand, but can we talk, can I talk to you about this stabbing that you have right here? Because I think that's very, very important. And if you don't mind, I want to spend a few minutes just talking about that. Because I think I have something that can really help you with that, even if you don't believe in knives. Jesus was doing something that transformed the world. And it wasn't just the miracles. It was the preaching of the gospel. So I'm going to ask you this question, church. What is the gospel? What is the gospel? We have to have an answer to this question. We have to have an answer to this question. I think this is the most important question of our lives. What is the gospel? Think about it for a second. Some of you may think you're a Christian, like I did. I was 20 years old when I became a Christian. But for 20 years, I thought I was a Christian. Because I grew up in the church. I grew up around Christianity. I grew up hearing about Jesus and faith and all those things. But my life was not transformed. Not that I didn't hear the gospel. I just didn't believe it. It didn't grip my heart. And for some of us who are Christians, we need a clear answer to this because people need to know the gospel. We need to preach the gospel. You don't have to be a great, great, amazing speaker. No. No. Just know the basics of the gospel. This gospel message. So I'm going to ask you, and I really, I really want you to think about this. Think, don't leave here. If you hear anything, hear this. Hear this question. What is the gospel? I've heard it shared like this before, and I'm going to share this with you this morning. And I hope it's helpful in your understanding of what the gospel is. The one and only God, this is the gospel, the one and only God who is holy made us in his image and likeness. But we, but we sinned against God. We rebelled against him. And we were cut off from our relationship with God. But in his great love, God sent his son Jesus to come and rescue us from our own sins. We were enemies to God. And he rescued us from our own sins. Jesus established his kingdom by acting as both a mediating priest and a priestly sacrifice. He lived the perfect life that we should have lived. And he died the death that we should have died. You see, our sin has separated us from God. God is so holy, he can have nothing to do with sin. And so he's, our sin has separated us from God, but God 
being just, he has to deal with that sin because he's holy and righteous, right? He can't just let that sin slide. He has to deal with it. But he's also loving and compassionate that he deals with that sin by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross. See, for me, that, that didn't make sense as a kid. I was like, yeah, Jesus died on the cross. I got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He died. I got it. He rose. I got it. But he died for me. He died for my sins, my rebellion, my, my pride, my arrogance, my lust of the flesh. He died for that. But he didn't just die. He rose from the dead, showing he had power over life and death. Hmm. And God accepted his sacrifice, and the wrath of God was extinguished. The, the, the reality is that this gift is out there. We have to receive it. How do you receive it, I, you might ask? That's a good question. I'm glad you asked. We must repent of our sins. We must turn away from a lifestyle of rebellion against God. Today in our culture, it is cool and hip, uh, and, and it, the thing to do is to rebel against God. It's so common, we don't even talk about it anymore. We're used to seeing it on TV. We're used to experiencing it in life every day. It's common for us. We can't get used to sin. Christ has died for it. And I want to challenge you, if you are in here and you don't even know if you know Jesus, my call to you is to turn away from your sins, to repent of your sins, and trust in the person who Jesus is and his work on the cross. Trust in him. Put your whole life in his hands. Not just, yo, I'm going to pray a little bit, I'm going to go to church, you know, I'm going to ask for forgiveness whenever I mess up. No. Lean on him. Like he's the only thing that's going to keep you standing. He is all you have. This is salvation to completely trust in Christ and him crucified. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What Jesus did on the cross, he took our sins when he died on the cross, but he also gave us his righteousness. So now we stand in good standing with God. The gospel is beautiful. The gospel is amazing. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Not only are we no longer separated from him, we're actually made righteous in Christ. I don't know any more important message than the gospel message. So, friends, if you don't know Jesus today, come to him. Find forgiveness. Find hope. Find life in Christ and Christ alone. The Bible says, in Christ, you are a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. I know some of you might be thinking, ah, all the stuff that I've done, all the stuff that I'm doing, there's no way that God can forgive me. There's no way that I can become a Christian. I have to give up so many things. 
but yet your heart might be yearning for this new truth, this reality that is before you. I say don't run from it. If God is doing something in you, it doesn't matter where you come from or what you do or what you've done. The gospel is greater. God's grace is greater. And again, if you want to have a relationship with him, if you want to know him, repent, turn away, and trust. Put your whole trust. Like, what does that look like, Tim? I don't know how to trust. Just tell God, I don't know what to do, but whatever you want me to do, I'm going to do that. I just want you, God. So this verse, the very first verse, tells us what he shared. The next verse, verse 36, shares It tells us whom he was preaching to. In verse 36, it says, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He saw them and he had compassion. We're just walking through the text. He saw them and he had compassion on them. You know, the interesting thing is too often we can look but not see. Does that make sense? We can, we can be looking at something and not really see what's going on. You know, I have to consider sometimes as I'm reading this and studying the text, how many gospel opportunities I may have missed because I wasn't seeing them. I wasn't looking for them either. I'm just going through life. And Jesus, as he's doing ministry, he looks up and he sees the crowds. Now, mind you, crowds have been following Jesus for a couple of chapters now, okay? If you're healing people, so, hey, look, I got my back hurt right now. I'll be like, what? Did you say he was down Mississippi? You're going to find, you're going to find, so, hey, look, you got a need. You're going to look for the person who can do it. Crowds were following him. And he looked up. And he saw the needs of those around him. He had compassion on them. Another way of saying compassion, he had deep, deep pity on them. Not just like, oh, shame. That was a word we said all the time. Something bad happened in South Africa or Zambia. Shame. Shame. Oh, he missed his bus. Shame. Not too bad, just shame. They're harassed and helpless. Jesus didn't say, shame. He had deep pity. And there's a difference between looking at something and really seeing it. When I, like I said, when I first moved to South Africa, it was a different world for me. Um, I had lived in different, a lot of different places, but I had never lived in so much poverty before or near so much poverty. Um, and... Um, I, I could. I was looking at the poverty, but I wasn't seeing it. And the longer I got into the context and the culture of that, I began to see it, how deep it was and how, how long it would run in, in the lives of the people there, particularly in Joburg. And then finally, my heart began to, to soften to this reality. I couldn't just drive past, it, drive past it anymore. I had to do something about it. I, I didn't have a lot of money when I first moved to South Africa. I, I had half of the support I needed. So that basically meant I had a year before I ran out of money and then I have to go back to the U.S. And that's basically what happened. So I was living off basically eggs and oatmeal every day. And so I'm like, how can I help 
these people. I know I got more than them, but how can I help them? And I had an idea. I said, I can't keep giving out money because I know they're going to buy glue or drugs with this money. And they're going to sniff the glue and buy the drugs. So if I give them money, that's not going to be helpful. But what if I gave them food? I can't afford to give them all this bread. They're going to go real fast. I got it. Peanuts and raisins. That came to my mind. I love peanuts and raisins. I'm not giving them something I don't like. I like that myself. I hope they like it too, you know. So I bought a big box of peanuts and raisins. I put them under the front seat of my car. And every time I drove past a robot, which is like a stoplight, right? <laughs> a robot is what we call it. That's a stoplight. There were people at every robot begging or selling or stealing. Those are the options you had at the robot. You always had your window up. You always had your purse on the floor. You never had any bags on the chair. Y'all know this, right? Like this was a lifestyle. But I had peanuts now. So I began to meet these guys. I began to care about these guys. I met a guy named Bongani on the side of the road. Smart. Knew multiple languages. His English was better than mine. I'm like, bro, what are you doing here? Like, can we get you in school somewhere? I'm talking about like university. I'm talking trade school, high school, what you need. Like, he didn't want to leave the streets. There's another guy named Joseph. I was 23 when I moved to South Africa. I met Joseph when I was, I met him on that short-term trip that Pastor T was talking about. I met him then. I moved back. He was still in the streets. When I left South Africa, Joseph was still in the streets. Now, he's the same age as me. But I knew him. And I gave him peanuts and raisins. And I gave him the gospel. And in the wintertime, which is now, sometimes my friends and I, we would, We'll put some, we'll get like a big pot of soup. We make soup and we, we drive around to the robots and we help give them soup, you know, during the cold winter time. But our passion, our compassion grew because we couldn't just look at the need anymore. We had to do something. We began to invite them to church and share the gospel with them. I wish I could say they came to faith. I wish I could say they stayed off the streets. They got off and they would go back to it. But I know one thing for sure. My heart grew because I began to see and not just look at them as, as people, as what do they want from me and they're going to take my last and these things won't last. There is something that will last. That's the gospel. The word of God in the souls of men. And Jesus saw that. They were bothered. They were harassed and helpless. Like sheep without a shepherd. The good shepherd is seeing these people are shepherdless. Can you imagine? Jesus is the good shepherd. And he's looking and seeing the masses and saying, they need leadership. They need guidance. They need protection. They need help. And from the gut of Christ, from his heart, from the depths of in him, he, he has this, this pity, this compassion on those. That he's steady preaching from city to city, from town to town, which he came to do. Then in the third verse, 
You see the need from a different angle. Verse 37. It says, then he says to his disciples. So he's looking at the crowd. They're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he looks to his disciples and he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. This is the observation that Jesus makes. The crowds are no longer sheep, they're harvest. And they're ready and they're ripe. They're ready for picking. They're ready. They need someone to go out and harvest them. But the laborers are few. So imagine Jesus after preaching and serving the crowds, he knew that the harvest was ready. He said, there's just one problem. We don't have enough people to go out into the harvest field. All these people out here need help. He's talking to his disciples, and he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. That's, that's, that's the issue. But why does he say that the, that, why does Jesus say that the laborers are few? Again, if you look at the context, you see that Jesus has been doing all, that he's been carrying the lion's share of the ministry in uh, the previous chapters. He's been doing all the preaching and the teaching and healing. Do you understand? And he's doing it. And he's doing it. And he's doing it and he's preaching, he's blessing them. Sure. The harvest is plentiful. Hey, y'all, we need to, we need to do something. He's talking to the harvest. He's talking to the disciples. They have been with Jesus. They've been watching. They've been seeing. They've been learning. And Jesus is saying, you need to participate. When you look at this, this text in Matthew 9, 37, is where he says the, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Then you jump to chapter 10, right? 10, the whole you know, one through five is basically Jesus saying, I'm sending you guys out. He selects the 12. He tells them how to do it. The harvest is plentiful, labors are few. 9, 37, chapter 10, verse 1 through 5. Hey, y'all, you, 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 I'm giving you authority and power to do this, this, and this. Let's go. But what's in the middle of that? That's what we're talking about today. It's a call to pray. In verse, Matthew chapter 9, verse 38, is a call to pray for labors. And this is what we're going to talk about today. It's going to be real quick. This is a plea to God for laborers. I was asked to, to share on praying for missions, praying for laborers, and that's what I'll do. But I think this context allows us to see how we got to this place. What is the setting in which Jesus is saying we need to pray? Does that make sense? 
So let's look at this last verse and consider four points on why praying for laborers could be one of the most God-honoring things you could ever do. If you'd like to know where we're going, I'll give you the four points now. And, uh, and we'll go back over them. The first one is this. Number one, prayer is the plan. Number two, we need to pray earnestly. We need to pray earnestly. Number three, praying is a sign of dependence. And number four, your prayers will be the aroma of heaven. Your prayers will be the aroma of heaven. Number one, prayer is a plan. So quick overview, 35, Jesus is preaching the gospel and healing people. 36, Jesus looks at the crowd and sees their need. He has compassion on them. 37, Jesus makes the observation, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Here one might think that Jesus says, he, would, he should have said something like, let's create and implement a strategic plan for mobilizing people throughout the nations that we might reach all peoples at one time. Isn't that make sense? Like at that point, you'd be like, yo, we need a strategic plan right here, right? This is where the plan comes in. No, that's chapter 10. We'll get to that. Chapter 10 is that plan. Right here, Jesus says, we got to pray. We have to pray. Jesus starts with prayer as the primary response for a lack of laborers. He says, pray to the Lord of the harvest for more laborers. Jesus tells him to go one thing. He says, go do one thing. Go pray. I, listen, I'm reading this and I'm like, I can't believe he just said that. Mostly because I'm like, God, have I been praying like I should have been praying? His response to this situation is that we must pray. The plan Jesus sets before his disciples, he's still talking to his disciples, for reaching the world with the gospel is to go pray. I'm sure like prayer, yeah, we, we know we're going to pray, Lord, but that's too simple. We need, a, we, need a, we need a meeting. No, we need to pray. Hey, Jesus, hold on, man. Just like, prayer's too simple. We need, we need to, I know a dude down the other side of Jerusalem. He's a big recruiter. Got a big synagogue of folks. I'm sure if we rope him in, he's going to be on our squad. He's going to be on our team. We can get him. He know a lot of people, Jesus. I know him. My baby, my cousin, Tracy, he know him. He says, nah, we need to pray. So my question is, what is prayer? What is Jesus hanging all of this on? It's very simple. It's communication. It's really simple. It's us communicating with God and God communicating with us. Engaging God 
with our hearts. Us speaking with God about anything and God responding to our prayers in various ways. Now, like I just said, it might be hard for some of us to get our minds around this idea that this was the plan. <laughs> Mostly because we're, we're very strategic people most of the time. If you're in type of leadership or anything like that, you're like, yo, we need to. In my type of ministry, we have to think about all the details. And we have to think about all this and that. And I go sit in a pastor's office and they're doing the same thing. Like, yo, we need, a, we need leadership here, here, and here. We need to develop these guys and these men and women so that they can serve here. That's, that's appropriate. But Jesus starts with prayer. He said, that's the plan. And I think that's probably one of the most underutilized gifts of grace in the Christian faith. Prayer. It's right there. We don't even need anything. We just, anywhere we can pray. Anywhere, anytime, in your head, out loud, in your room, in your car, at work, at the store, at the gym, uh, at, at ballet, wherever it is, you can pray anytime. Anytime. Think about this. Anytime we can communicate with the creator of heaven and earth at any time. Right here. He's right here. I will never leave you. He's right here. And I'm thinking to myself, bro, I'm reading this and I'm like, I need to pray. It's like we see the need for prayer, but we don't see it as essential sometimes to the gospel going forth. We think about our neighbors and nations and we pray for them, but. You know how you can say a prayer and be like, God's great, God's good, thank you for food about to receive, just name a prayer, man. Like, that, that was me growing up, and I was my real quick, boom, you know what I'm saying? I did what I was supposed to do. But I pray totally different when there's a need. Don't you? Or oh, we pray totally different when you know you don't have any food. Like, God, I don't know how I'm going to eat tonight. I don't know how, if she's going to make it out of the hospital. I don't know how I'm going to get to work. God, I don't know how I'm going to fight this temptation. There's a whole other earnestness about it. But prayer is the lighter fluid which ignites the making of labors. That's what prayer is. And again, I'm not speaking from perfection on this. I'm speaking out of need and conviction of the scriptures. That God calls us to pray. But he, he doesn't just say pray. He says pray earnestly. He says pray Earnestly. Point number two, pray earnestly. That's to pray with a sense of urgency. It means to plead and beg to God to do something that you know you cannot do. Let me ask you all this something. This might be personal, don't raise your hands, but when was the last time, if ever, you just sat on your face and cried out to God. You know what I mean? Prostrate. Just bowed out 
and say, God, I, I want to talk to you right now. About anything. In humility, with a sense of need and urgency, maybe you pulled away from the crowd in solitude. Maybe you got up early or stayed up late just so you could be alone and talk to God. You turned off the TV. You hid your phone from yourself. You told everybody you was busy. You just said, God, I need to talk to you. Just this earnest plea to God in your prayer life. When was the last time that happened? Do you remember? If not, let me ask you this. Is that something you want? Maybe that's just something you want. Maybe you don't know you want it, but you want it. And what God is doing right now is giving you a sense of how much more you could have of him right now. If you just came before him and prayed, called out his name and cried to him. Can you think of a moment maybe in scripture when we see someone beg God to move through prayer? First thing that comes to my mind is is Esther. You know the story of Esther? Esther 4. Mordecai hears of what the king has done. Hmm. Listen, listen to Mordecai. Listen to what happens in Esther 4. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. And he went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. So he heard the The law, he was broken. He realized this is this could be it. And he cried out to God. And you know the story with Esther. Esther think, you know, I can't go talk to the king. You know, he ain't called me. It's been, I can't just walk up in there. He's got to call me. And more guys, you think you're going to be exempt from what the king is saying? Maybe God has called you for such a time as this. But if you don't go, he's going to raise up somebody. So Esther got to thinking. And this is what she said in verse 15, same chapter. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold it fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also do as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Imagine what her prayer life was like for those three days. She praying not just for herself, but for the nation, her her whole people. Same thing in Psalm 51, when David sins against the Lord, he sleeps with Bathsheba, kills her husband, Uriah. 
and he found out his sin, he fell before the Lord. Go read Psalm 51 and see how David cries out to God in brokenness, in humility. Some of us don't know what to do with our sin. Some of us are ashamed. and high. Listen, listen, if you are a Christian, go before the Lord. Repent and believe the gospel that we just preached to you. The gospel is greater. The gospel is greater. Cry out to the Lord. And he's given you men and women in this place who will walk with you through it. Who will walk with you through it. I love how it says in Matthew 26, 39, in the garden as Jesus was praying, it says, and going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Sometimes it just takes us taking time to intentionally seek God, to cry out to him, to call to him. And Jesus is calling us like we're needy men and women. He says, pray to the Lord to send out workers. We're still talking about laborers, y'all. Pray to the Lord to send out workers into the harvest field. This is how we need to be as the people of God, praying that God would raise up laborers praying with an earnest prayer, a deep desire that God will raise up men and women. You know what that looks like when you beg, when you plead with God? Looks like you depend on him. Looks like he's the only answer you have to your situation. Doesn't it? That's point number three. Prayer is a sign of dependence on Christ. Prayer is a sign of dependence on Christ. It says, therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest field. Jesus tells his disciples to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest field. Into his harvest field. We're praying to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest field. Even though we have a responsibility before the Lord to pray earnestly, it is the Lord who will make it happen. The Lord will bring laborers into his own harvest field. Our job is to pray. This prayer is is not a request. He says, go pray. It is our responsibility as believers, as a church, to be faithful, to pray for laborers. So according to Jesus, the pathway to getting workers into the harvest field begins with prayer. Earnest prayer before the Lord. And as we do that, we are reminded that we are putting our trust in a sovereign God. We're putting our hope in King Jesus. He is the Lord of the harvest. So our prayer, it looks at what, it, what that looks like is 
Or Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 6 through 8, he says, I planted Apollos water, but God gave the increase. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to pray, and I'm going to pray, and I'm going to trust the Lord. But if this thing is going to grow, it's going to be because God did it. I'm going to be faithful there. God is going to one who's going to cause the increase. Matthew 28, Jesus says, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I've commanded you. And then when he says, I will be with you always to the end of all age. But God will be with us while we do this. It's not just us doing this. It's God doing us in us, doing this in us and through us. God is doing the work. When Paul talks to Timothy, he says, Timothy, you then, my son, be strong, be strengthened in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses and trust to reliable men who will be qualified to teach others also. Oftentimes, we think about that last part and trust to reliable men who will be qualified to teach others also. But in verse 1, it says this, be strengthened in the grace in Christ Jesus. That power, that strength comes from the Lord. We can't do anything without God. Our prayer is a reflection of our understanding of that, our dependency upon Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it this way. He says, you pray and make your request made known unto God, and God will do something. It is not your prayer that is going to do it. It is not you who's going to do it, but God. Make your request known unto God, and God will do something. It is not your prayer that is going to do it. It is not you who's going to do it, but God. Our prayer is a sign of our need of God, our hope and our trust in God. Oftentimes I think about, I really, I really was challenged by this. And it's been good for my soul, y'all. It's been really good. We say, of course we should pray. But oftentimes it looks like our hope is in a strategic plan. It's, it can be in the plan more than it can be in our God. And we lean on that plan so much. And when things don't go according to plan, we don't know what to do. Let me encourage you with this as we get ready to close. Some of us may never ever set foot in a 1040 window. You know that you heard of 1040 window before? Yes, no? It's an area on the map where there's the most people in the world that have never heard the name of Jesus. It's Northern Africa, Middle East, Southeast Asia. They call it the 1040 window. 10 degrees north, 40 degrees north, and there's a little box there over Africa, Middle East, and Asia. Millions of people have never heard the name Jesus. And most of us won't ever go there. Most of us will probably never set foot in one of those countries. 
But what if I said you can make a real impact for the kingdom of God right here by praying for those nations? By constantly, consistently praying for those nations. So I want to end with this. We said, let me, I'll wrap up in conclusion. We said prayer is a plan. Number two, we must pray earnestly. Number three, we must depend on God. And the last one, it says, your prayers are the aroma of grace in heaven. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 5. Now, John has a vision from from the Lord, and he's sharing this vision, and it's written down. He's in heaven. He's seen these things. Let me read this to us. You have it? Let's look at verse 4 through 9. You know what? says, then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seal? And no one in heaven on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. That's Jesus. With seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and their 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to God, to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. My friends, you don't know where your pleas are, your pleas for labors are ending up. Our prayers don't hit the ceiling. They are being stored up in heaven and will be the fragrance of life for all those who enter. When the lamb opens the scroll and worship will ensue, our prayers for the labors will be the fragrance of life 
And that's what we'll be smelling. I was talking to my wife about this passage, and she said, Tim, wow. She said, man, I wonder how big those bowls are. I said, that's a good question. I don't know, but I think about that, and I think to myself, man, I want to I wanna pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into this harvest field, not just for the nations in the 1040 window over there that we don't see. We need to pray for those. But for laborers right here on this block, up and down this street and around the corner, we need to raise up laborers. Ask the Lord to do that. You know what happened when the disciples did that? Go read chapter 10. He sent them jokers out. So prayer is not just a responsibility. It is an amazing, amazing privilege to communicate with God the Father and connect with him in such a way that our prayers are stored up in heaven. Let's pray. God, we thank you this morning for the opportunity to encourage one another. Thank you for your, your bride here, the church here, who's inviting me in. I pray, Lord, that your word is encouraging to them, spurring them on to love and good deeds. I pray for the saints here that they would pray more, they pray deeply and earnestly, and that they would continue to do so more and more. Pray for myself and my church back at home, my friends and my family, that I pray, Lord, you would help us to pray more and to take advantage of every opportunity that we have in Christ. I pray for those who do not know you here today, who've, who have heard the gospel, heard the invitation to Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would work in their hearts, and that if there's anything keeping them from turning to you, that they would realize it's not greater than Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.